The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you take your copy of the Word of God and look at Psalm 84, kind of in between series right now, and I thought it would be good for us to, to look at some Psalms, and Psalm 84 is one of my favorites, and one of my favorite books in the entire world is Pilgrim's Progress. I know a man, my church history professor, who read it every year for 50 years. Now you might think, what kind of book would be worth that kind of attention? But the beauty of the book is that it lays out the Christian life as a pilgrimage that just begins when we come to personal faith in Christ and then continues long after that until at last we reach the celestial city. We cross the river and reach the celestial city. And so there's lots of difficulties and troubles along the way. Now the idea of a pilgrim is a little bit foreign to us. It shouldn't be, but perhaps it is. The ideas of pilgrimage and, and uh, the journeying or traveling uh, connected in some way with religious observance is known all over the world and to all different religions of the world. In ancient Greece, the pagan religions had their pilgrimages. Uh, you remember in Acts 19, the big chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And what that meant was the temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, was a great place to go worship, and people would travel from miles away to go see this temple and to worship Artemis there. It was a pilgrimage. Islam has a pilgrimage. It's called a hajj, and anyone that makes it is a haji. It's one of the five pillars of Islam, and if you're a faithful uh, Muslim and you're able-bodied and have the resources to make it, once in your life you have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Hindus travel to the Ganges River to wash or to bathe in what they consider to be its sacred waters. When Christy and I were living in Japan, we lived on a sacred Buddhist island of Shikoku, and there were 88 Buddhist temples, and pilgrims would come, and they would be dressed in certain interesting clothes with these straw hats and these canes, and they had bells and little bags, talismans on the end of their canes, and they would, they would go from place to place. Many of them were Westerners, as a matter of fact. Interesting, if you go to uh, uh, a search engine and type in Pilgrim's Progress, you're going to end up with www.dharmatours.org, and it's a Buddhist pilgrimage that you can go on there. I was very distressed. And so what you need to do is you need to just, just flood the sites that go to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and get it back up to number one. But I don't want Dharma Tours to be the number one Pilgrim's Progress. But Pilgrimages are part of religions all over the world. Medieval Catholicism had their pilgrimages as well, as uh, pilgrims would travel to relics and to Rome, for example, to see the Via Dolorosa or uh, to climb on their knees up the holy staircase. Canterbury Tales by Anselm, I mean by, uh, by Chaucer, uh, is uh, stories that are told along the road of medieval pilgrims as they traveled to Canterbury. And so the idea of pilgrimage is really well familiar to us. Now the basic idea of a pilgrimage is the locality of deity. In, in some sense that, that the God that you're worshiping is more, more here than he is there. And you kind of have to go to where he is and worship. Or that there is holy ground or a holy place set apart by God and you travel there and you worship. Now evangelical Christianity uh, after the ministry of Christ 
and we'll talk more about this in a moment, has rightly rejected the idea that God is more here than there and, and rejected the idea of a physical pilgrimage. But along with that, modern evangelicalism, I think in some senses, lost the sense of a true spiritual pilgrimage. Christianity was originally called the way. I think probably after Jesus' statement, I am the way, in John 14, 6. But evangelicalism doesn't know much about the journey, doesn't know much about the way. It seems static. The only journey that you make might be uh, coming forward at a revival. You would come out of your pews and come forward, and once that journey has been made, there's no more journey to be made. You're saved, and it's set, and there's nothing more. But we've learned in this church, and we're studying, that salvation's far more than just the beginning of it far more than justification. I think the Puritans of all uh, the movements in church history had probably the clearest vision of sanctification, of a journeying that begins with original saving faith, with justification, but then travels on through sanctification. And thus, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I think, stands picturesquely to talk to us about the Christian life, the pilgrimage. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, as Newton put it, Christian at last makes it to the celestial city through the slew of despond, the hill difficulty, the valley of humiliation where he battled Apollyon, through the valley of the shadow of death, through vanity fair and doubting castle he fought his battles and he made a journey, through also the pleasant stops of refreshment as well. The Christian life is indeed a pilgrimage. Now, Psalm 84 is a pilgrim psalm. That's what it is. And it, it's established within the old covenant shadow of the temple sacrificial system and the law of Moses. Now the law of Moses ordained a pilgrimage three times a year. Three times a year the men of Israel would get up from their homes and they would travel to the place that God had chosen for them, the, the central place, the worship place, where they would all go. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest First Fruits, and the Feast of Ingathering, these are the three mentioned in Exodus 23, 14 through 17. Deuteronomy clarified the need to travel to a specific place that God would choose from among the tribes that eventually came to be Jerusalem. Now, at that point, originally, it was a tabernacle. It was a movable tent. But that tent would find its rest in a certain place among the 12 tribes. Uh, the tribe of Judah, in the end, and Jerusalem, the city of David, would be that place. Eventually, the movement went from tabernacle to temple. When David, sitting in a, in a palace of cedar and just smelling the aroma from those freshly cut cedar panels, said, here am I living in a temple, uh, I mean, in a palace of cedar, and God's ark is in a tent. And Nathan the prophet said, do whatever's on your heart. And he wanted to build a permanent resting place for God, the temple. Now, we know that Solomon was the one that built the temple. But the Temple of Solomon was not imposing in its size, really wasn't that large itself, but it was exquisite in its quality. The finest craftsmanship and the best materials went into it. It was, it was inlaid with gold and overlaid with gold and, and just meticulously crafted. So much so that when the Restoration Temple was built after the Jews had come back from Babylon, and they built the temple at Haggai, they were weeping and crying over how ugly and small it seemed to be compared to Solomon's temple, which was so ornate and lavish. And so it was an incredible thing, exquisite in beauty. And it had been supernaturally filled with the glory of God. When Solomon dedicated it in 1 Kings 8.11, 
The glory cloud of the Lord came down, descended and filled the whole temple with smoke and with glory. And it said in 1 Kings 8.11, the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so it was to this temple that the pilgrims made their pilgrimage. They were traveling from, from Dan to Beersheba. They would leave their farms and their villages. They would leave behind their work and they would get up and they'd get on the road and they'd start to walk. And they would travel for these feasts. They would travel the highways and the byways of the promised land leading to Mount Zion. And because Jerusalem was elevated, physically elevated, it was a mountain, uh, they, they were singing what they called songs of ascents. And as they were ascending the mountains, they would sing these. And you might note in Psalm 120 through 134, these are all labeled a song of ascent. These would be psalms that they would sing as they would travel together. I think Psalm 84 fits in that class, in that category. Now, if we look at the psalm, I want to break it apart into four parts. In verse 1 through 4, we see a yearning for the temple is really a yearning for God. In verse 5 through 7, we see a pilgrimage to the temple, really a pilgrimage to God. In verse 8 and 9, we see a prayer for the anointed king that he would be blessed by God. And then verse 10 through 12, celebration of life at the temple, a life that is also blessed by God. Let's look at the first subsection, and that's yearning for the temple, really a yearning for God in verse 1 through 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. You see the yearning there, a yearning to be at the temple. And and more than that, not just because, oh, look at such magnificent stones and look at the gold. No, the psalmist wants to be near God. It's a yearning to be near God. The psalmist remembers past pilgrimages. Three times a year they would go up, and the memory is stirred by the temple's spectacular beauty, by the memories of the past, and and more than that, the temple reminds the singer of the psalm of God and just being near God. The temple represents fellowship with the Lord Almighty, and so the psalmist's soul is deeply stirred with a hunger for fellowship with God. Verse 2, again, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And, and I think at some point in his many pilgrimages up there, he noticed some details in the temple. He noticed that the sparrow and the swallow had, had made nests, perhaps up in the rafters someplace, is nothing sacred. Well, of course it's sacred, but the birds, they're going to do what comes naturally, and so they built a nest. And so there they were, a little nest. And and he looked at that very positively. Even the sparrow and the swallow feel peaceful and comfortable to be here. And no bird, no female bird is going to build a nest where she doesn't feel comfortable and safe and secure. And so it's a place of safety. You know, if you look biblically at the sparrow, the sparrow is in one place a symbol of worthlessness. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? said the Lord, and yet none of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And so they're a symbol of of worthlessness in one sense. The swallow, on their part, a symbol of restlessness, as they are able to travel uh, across across the oceans. They're able to to wing their flights for, for hundreds of miles without stopping, without resting. But here the sparrow feels safe and secure and finds her worth, as it were, being near God. 
And the swallow at last has found a home, a place to make a nest, a place of comfort. And so, in effect, as the psalmist looks at these birds, the psalmist is thinking, oh, I would love to be one of those. Just here all the time. That I wouldn't ever have to go back. I wouldn't have to keep working the fields and doing my life just to be near you, O oh Lord. I would love to be near you all the time. And so the pilgrim began his pilgrimage and traveled up toward Jerusalem. Verse 5 through 7, he's making his pilgrimage and thinking about it. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now, a pilgrimage like this is going to take physical strength. It's going to be a long journey. And it's going to be a journey up a mountain. So they've got to have some physical strength. And so he says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And they go from strength to strength. And so there's a certain strength that's needed for the pilgrimage. And he's getting his strength from God himself. Now, the commitment to the pilgrimage comes from the heart. Verse 5, blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Now, the Hebrew word for pilgrimage is really highways. They've set their hearts on the highways. The highways back then would be kind of curved with, with ditches on either side for the rain to run off. We have a far more advanced highway technology than they did, but these were good roads. And the psalmist is saying that the pilgrim has set his heart on the road. He's thinking about the traveling and the journey and all those roads they led up to the temple. They led up to Jerusalem. And so, blessed is the, is the one who set his heart on making that journey. Not grudging, not irritated by it. God loves a cheerful giver. Glad to go, looking forward to it. Blessed is the one who comes at it with that attitude. Now, it says in verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. Now, this valley, valley of Baca is probably related to the Hebrew word for weeping, bokim. And so they're going through the valley of weeping, and even there they make it a place of blessing. They make it a place of springs, and the autumn rains covers it with pools. So even as the journey is difficult, even if it, as it's trying, they're able through their faith and their commitment to God to turn it into a, a place of blessing. The third subsection is in verse 8 through 9. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Now, I want you to realize as they're traveling, of course they're not going to be traveling alone. There's going to be a huge community of people going up. That's where Canterbury, Canterbury Tales came from because they were telling stories and exchanging anecdotes and singing songs together as they went. It was a real time of community building, you can well imagine. And so, you know, again, look at verse 7. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Nobody gets left behind. You can imagine if somebody's getting a little weak, they might even be physically carried up. But there's a sense of community there, a sense of togetherness. And as they're doing that, they must think probably about their nation and about what's going on. And they want to pray for their leader. Much as we prayed for our president on Thursday, the National Day of Prayer, they would pray for their king. And so look at verse 8 and 9. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Now the word shield, magain, sometimes just means physical shield, but it is also frequently a metaphor for a king. It means a protector, a provider, a benefactor. 
who sets himself up in a position where he can take care of his people. He's going to protect them militarily and fight their battles for them, but all the booty and the plunder that's coming back in, the people are going to get blessed. And so a prayer for the protection of the shield, the king, is a protection, a prayer for protection for the whole nation. And it says, look with favor on your anointed one. The word means Messiah, or the Greek word would be the Christ. And so it's really talking about the Davidic king who was anointed to take the place of his Davidic father. And so the lineage went on down. And so this is a prayer for the king. The fourth subsection we see in verse 10 through 12. A celebration of life at the temple, blessed by God. Verse 10, blessed is, or sorry, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. That's just a celebration of the total superiority of a life near God. It's better than anything else. You know, I'd rather be an hourly worker, in effect, on the temple. I'd rather just be a doorkeeper. This is a great recruiting verse for ushers, and people have used it for years in Baptist churches. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So if you're thinking about being an usher, please come and talk to me afterwards and use this verse as your life verse. That's fine. We always need more ushers. But it's saying more than that, just saying it's just a superior life to be near God. It's better than anything. It's better to do that than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And we see also here the overwhelmingly generous provision of God. In verse 11, the Lord God is really our shield. I mentioned that word shield. God's our king. The Lord God is our protector. He's our benefactor. He's the one sitting up on his throne in heaven giving us everything we need. The Lord is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor in the NIV. Talk more about that in a moment. But then it says, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. What a magnificent promise. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. God is never stingy. Later in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul would say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, lavishly or graciously give us all things? He wouldn't hold back Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, but gave him up for us. He is generous. He's never stingy. And so no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know, Satan constantly tempts those on pilgrimage to talk about how tough the life is. Think about all that you've sacrificed, all that you've given up in order to get on pilgrimage. How can we ever say that? Like C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I make would be too great for him. And David Livingston said, how can I talk about sacrifice when I consider what Jesus Christ has done for me? And so, verse 11 is a reminder that no good thing does he withhold from those who are making this pilgrim walk. Ultimately, this is a life of faith and trust in God. Verse 12, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now, Scripture is totally and beautifully consistent, isn't it? What is going to save your soul? Faith in Christ alone. It is faith alone that has always saved. And so verse 12 is a, an old covenant shadow testimony to that again, as we get again and again in Scripture. It is faith. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. This is what justifies. Now, this is our old covenant 
understanding of Psalm 84. The pilgrim is making his way from the outskirts of the of the promised land from Dan to Beersheba as they're going up. They're in a community of other Jews. They're heading up to the physical temple. They're going to offer animal sacrifices up there. They're singing this song and other songs as they go. They're celebrating. They're praying for their Davidic king. They're praying for his uh, health and well-being. They're celebrating their life together with God. That's the Old Covenant. But we've gone a little further, haven't we, than that? We've seen some New Covenant fulfillment so that the Old Covenant is just shadow. We have the reality and the reality is Christ himself. And so we come to Psalm 84 as Christians, not as Old Covenant Jews, but as Christians, saying, tell me of the fulfillment of Psalm 84. Tell me of the fulfillment who is Christ. You see, Christ is the temple, and Christ is the sacrificial system. That was just shadow. The reality is Christ himself. Now, Moses saw the original vision of the tabernacle, and David later would see a heavenly vision of the temple. Both of them had a vision, and both of them saw a heavenly reality, and the temple was just a shadow or a dim reflection of that heavenly reality. It was, under God, the best they could do physically. And it was just how God wanted it to be. There was nothing wrong with it, but it was just a shadow, a, a heavenly physical an earthly physical replica of the heavenly reality. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5 tells us this. Earthly high priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Did you hear that? that that's where they serve. They serve at a sanctuary that's just a copy. And, and it's a shadow of the true reality that's in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Did you hear that? So God showed Moses a pattern for the tabernacle, and later he would show David a pattern for the temple. Now, Christ's death, his physical death on the cross was consistently prefigured by all of these animal sacrifices. As those pilgrims would go up to the temple and then they'd offer their blood sacrifices, when the priest would, would shed the blood of an animal, every time that happened, it was a shadow pointing ahead to the future death of the Lamb of God on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed on the cross, he fulfilled forever all animal sacrifice. And so we don't offer animal sacrifice here. I, I, I hope that's not a surprise to you. That's not the secret initiates that do it, and we do it directly. We don't do it at all. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but the blood of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, could take away sins. And so he is the fulfillment of the temple, and he is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Now, what do I mean when I say he's the fulfillment of the temple? Well, Jesus, uh, after he cleansed the temple, they came and talked to him about it, and they said, by what authority are you doing this? What sign can you give us so that we can know you have the right to cleanse the temple? He said, here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus' body is the temple of God. It's the place of meeting between sinners and a holy God. That's where we meet God, the body of Jesus Christ. So says Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 22, which actually goes right into the Holy of Holies on the temple. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, 
let us, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So Jesus, his body is the temple. His blood fulfills the sacrificial system. Therefore, we do not make a physical pilgrimage anywhere. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to sing the song of ascents physically as we travel up to the Temple Mount. We don't need to do that anymore. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. And as a matter of fact, he told us it would be. In John chapter 4, as he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he brings up her sin. She didn't want to talk about that. So she said, you know, our fathers say that we should worship here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say we should worship over in the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Now, which is right, since we're going to argue together? And Jesus, as usual, gave a shocking answer. He always went so much higher above the tough questions of the day. And he said, woman, believe me, time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You know what that means? There's not going to be one locus, one place of worship for Christians. God is everywhere, and he can be worshipped anywhere by somebody who's going to worship in spirit and in truth. It's no longer a single place for our pilgrimage. The pilgrims of Plymouth Plantation, we call them the pilgrims because they were on a religious journey. But interestingly enough, they were traveling away from all the population centers. They were going away from all the shrines and all the, the things. All they wanted was a howling wilderness. Just get away. Why? Because God is everywhere. And so they were pilgrims away physically but toward spiritually. Do you see that? And they were willing to set up shop on Cape Cod in December. Tough, tough Cape Cod in December, but they didn't care because what they wanted was to get away from the harassment of England and the decadence of Holland. There's no physical place we travel in our pilgrimage. But does that mean there's no pilgrimage for us? Does that mean there's no spiritual journey to be traveled? Listen to the words that Jesus spoke the night before he was killed. Do not let your hearts be troubled, John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Let me say that again. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that not a pilgrimage? Is there not a journey to be traveled? Is there not a destina destination, my Father's house, an even better destination, the Father himself? No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the destination of the pilgrimage. All right, well, then what is the way? Jesus said, you know the way. You know it. He never misspoke. You know the way to the place. Jesus is the road to Zion. He is the road. He's the way that we travel along the way. 
The earthly pilgrimage is fulfilled just as the, as the temple and the animal sacrifice was fulfilled. All of it fulfilled in Christ. Now, there's still yet a future fulfillment, isn't there? Because both the, the physical temple being a copy and shadow, and our present spiritual internal journey that we're traveling, both of them are pointing ahead to something yet future, aren't they? Something that none of us has experienced except by faith, by reading scripture. Look at uh, verse 11 in Psalm 84. The NAS has it this way. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. This is NAS now. The Lord gives grace and glory. Grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, this is a beautiful thing, isn't it? The perfection of the glory of heaven is so radiant and so beautiful that words can't describe it. Solomon's gold-covered, inside-and-out, gold-covered temple could never adequately reflect the glory of God. And even as beautiful as that was, the psalmist is saying, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Oh, just to see it again. Well, that's still just a physical reflection, a dim reflection, a copy and a shadow. What does the heavenly one look like? Do you ever wonder about that? What does it look like? Just to see it. No earthly beauty could compare with the beauty of the glorified Christ. We were studying in, uh, in our international Sunday school today, John 9, the the man born blind. And uh, Steve Young brought up the story of Fanny Crosby who had, was born blind as well. And, and they were asking her about the difficulty. She wrote all these beautiful hymns. She said, I have one advantage over all those that have been sighted all their lives. And that is that the first sight I see will be the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that spectacular? But all of us who are believers, we all know that we haven't seen anything yet. And so we're looking ahead to a future glory. Now, Jesus in his earthly ministry was a kind of glory. It says the Lord God is a sun and shield. And so, concerning his physical ministry, it says in Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. But how much more will it be in the future heavenly Jerusalem? Turn in your Bibles, keep your finger here in Psalm 84, but turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, this is the heavenly glory of the future city of God and the future temple such as it, as it will be. Revelation 21, in verse 22 and 23. Revelation 21, 22 and 23, it says, I did not see a temple in the city. Stop there. I didn't see a temple. Why? Well, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. But no need for a temple building because God will be the temple. The Lord will be the temple. The Lamb of God will be its temple. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And so this is the perfect fulfillment of the Lord is a sun and a shield. Do you see that? Jesus will be the sun then. I've talked in, in apologetics to people that struggle with the role of science and faith and how old the universe is and all that. And they, and they point out a discrepancy in Genesis uh, 1, the six-day creation. And they say, look, you know, God created light in the first day, but he didn't create the sun until the fourth day. Big problem. I'm saying, I don't see the problem. You see, in the future, in Jerusalem, there's not even going to be a sun. 
God is able to do light even without a sun. Did you know that? He can do it. If man can do it down in a dark basement, turn on an electric light, if we can do that kind of thing, God can do light without a sun. And so in the future glory of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, there'll be no sun. Jesus will be the sun. The glory of God will be its lamp. And it says also, the eternal dwelling place will be in perfect proximity to God. Remember the swallow and, and the sparrow? They're close to God. And how good is that, to be close to God? That's nothing compared to the future promise. Look again in Revelation 21, verse 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And so we see the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly coming together perfectly, a perfect union of heaven and earth, a fulfillment of the Lord's prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, a complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God yet to come. And then he describes the beauty of that place in Revelation 21, 18 through 21, the wall of the city was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. Meditate on that. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The great street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. I can never stop being a scientist. And so I just said, do we have all the colors of the spectrum here? And we do. Red is there in sapphire, orange is there in chrysolite, yellow in topaz, green in emerald, blue in beryl, indigo is jacinth, Violet in the amethyst. So basically these spectacular radiant colors are in the foundation of the walls of Jerusalem. And everything is transparent gold. Now what is that? What is transparent gold? I don't know, but that's what it is up there in heaven. Somehow the light from the glory of Christ just permeates everything, including you and me. It says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But notice there is no beauty, no light, no color apart from God and the Lamb. It's all His glory. And nobody's up there saying, hey, I look good today, don't I? Do you see my threads? These look good, don't they? Because everybody's going to be like that and it won't be our glory. It's all going to be His glory permeating so beautifully through the whole thing. Go back to Psalm 84. In verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those whose, whose walk is blameless. First he gives grace, and then what? Then he gives glory. You don't get the glory without the grace. If you haven't come to faith in Christ, you're not getting any glory. But if you come to faith in Christ, you travel from glory into ever-increasing glory. And God gives it all. That's your pilgrimage, from glory to glory. And all of it's by grace. The Lord gives it. He gives grace and he gives glory. No good thing does he withhold from you as you're making your pilgrimage. You do it by faith in Christ alone. Verse 12, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. From faith to faith, that's what we get. By trust in Christ alone we make this 
pilgrimage. And ultimately, better than this sparrow, and better than the swallow, and better than the doorkeeper at the house of God, and better than the sons of Korah who wrote it and sang it, better than all of those, we will not just be there as doorkeepers and birds and pillars and all that, but we will be there as beloved, adopted sons and daughters of God. Welcome into the very temple of God. That's our future. So proximity will be perfect. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That, brothers and sisters, is the destination of our pilgrimage. That's where we're going. Now, what application can we take from Psalm 84? Well, very simply, set your heart on this pilgrimage. That's it. Set your heart on it. Let it be your hope, your desire, your dream, the organizing feature of your life, this pilgrimage. A pilgrimage characterized by a yearning for Christ's heavenly glory. John Flavel, of Puritan, put it this way. Is Jesus Christ altogether lovely? Then I beseech you to set your souls upon this lovely Jesus. I am sure such an object as has been here represented would compel love from the coldest breast and the hardest heart. Away with those empty nothings. Away with this vain, deceitful world which deserves not the thousandth part of the love you give it. Let all stand aside and give way to Christ. Oh, if only you knew his worth and excellency, what he is in himself, what he has done for you, and what he deserved from you, you would need no arguments of mine to persuade you to love him. Esteem nothing lovely except as it is enjoyed in Christ or for the sake of Christ. Set your heart on a pilgrimage that's totally focused on Christ. Secondly, a pilgrimage characterized by trusting in Christ alone. We don't just walk the aisle, trust Christ, and then never trust him again. That's just the first day of a repentance and faith that lasts the rest of your life. And so we make this journey from faith to faith to faith to faith, day after day. And that faith is sustained by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Thirdly, a pilgrimage that is strengthened daily by Christ's power. Verse 5 through 7, it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Does it take strength to lead the Christian life? Yeah, it does. Do you ever get weary? You wake up and say, how am I going to do it again today? Fighting sin, struggling with temptation, walking a holy, upright life in this sinful world. How am I going to do it? The strength comes from God alone. That's the pilgrimage. Fourth, a pilgrimage characterized by persevering through Christ's sufferings. Verse 6 says, As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. Some of you go through the valley of weeping. You lose a loved one. You go through physical trials, unmentionable. Struggling with sin. Struggling with temptation. Struggling with, in relationships. Just struggling in life. As you go through this valley of weeping, you can make it a place of springs and pools by the grace of God. And Christiana, in the second half of Pilgrim's Progress, was making her way through the Valley of Humiliation. Greatheart, her guide, spoke this way about the Valley of Humiliation. The Valley of Humiliation is of itself as fruitful a place as any crow flies over. 
It is the best and most useful piece of ground in all those parts. It is a fat ground. And as you can see, consisteth much in meadows. And if a man was to come here in the summertime, as we do now, if he knew not anything before thereof, and if he also delighted himself in the sight of his eyes, he might see that it would be delightful to him. Behold how green this valley of humiliation is, how beautiful with lilies. I have known many laboring men that have got good estates in this valley of humiliation, for God resisteth the proud, but gives more and more grace to the humble. And so this valley of humiliation is a place where you're at your best, because when you're weak, that's when you're strong. This is a pilgrimage characterized by constantly growing in Christ's holiness. Verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Salvation is bigger than walking the aisle and getting saved. It's a war in which you're putting sin to death every day or you'll be wicked too. It's just the way it is. And so Isaiah 35, 8 talks about the highway. And it says a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go on it. The way of pilgrimage is a way of holiness, of personally putting sin to death. It is a sixthly a pilgrimage characterized by being blessed daily through Christ's provision. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. You know, the genius of Pilgrim's Progress is the rhythm of trial, refreshment. Trial, refreshment. Trial, refreshment. It's just the way it's written. You go from hill difficulty to interpreter's house, and then down to the valley of the shadow of death and valley of humiliation, and then you're at Manasin's house, or you're at the gentle arbor, or you're at the place of refreshment. It's just the way it is. If it were all the one, you'd get discouraged. If it were all the other, you'd get fat and lazy and comfortable. There's a rhythm to the Christian life, and so also it is for us. And then finally, seventh, this is a pilgrimage in which we don't have to and don't get to, and in fact can't make it alone. Look around you. Brothers and sisters in Christ here making the same journey with you, just like the Jews of old. They didn't travel alone. They looked around and it was in community. Americans need to hear this more than any other group on the face of the earth. We think like individuals, but you're not traveling alone. You're with brothers and sisters who are making the journey with you. Lean on them. Encourage them. Pray for them. Use your spiritual gifts in their lives. Strengthen them as they go from strength to strength, just as you do. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.